Well, if you would again, uh, take out your Bible and let's turn to Genesis chapter 18. And we will today be looking at verses 16 through 32. Genesis chapter 18, starting in verse 16. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will he destroy the whole city for lack of five? He said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of the forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray now, God, for the preaching of your word. Give us ears to hear. Be with this, your servant. May we come to understand and apply this text and give Jesus all the glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. A great many Christians in our time have been infected by a kind of rationalism. 
Now, this is where the ideas of men are given the most weight and usually will lead to a denial of the supernatural. But even as some may not deny the supernatural activities of God, they still deny that God would choose to reveal himself to only some people and not to others. That God elected some to everlasting life before the foundation of the world and worked specifically through them, but then not through others. The viewpoint that God reveals himself equally to all men is not only unhistorical, but also discounts the impact which sin has played on the world and the power of God over all that takes place. In reality, God has worked through a particular people throughout redemptive history, a people of His own choosing. And this is made most evident in the life of Abraham. Now, to understand what is happening here in Genesis, we first need to come to appreciate the doctrine of divine election and how all of God's dealings with men, how God is dealing here with Abraham, is rooted in this principle. The doctrine is present even in our own passage. Here, election is found here in this passage when God says, For I have chosen him. I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. You see, God's choosing of Abraham out of the mass of humanity at that time was for a special purpose. Namely, to bring about the blessings and so that the people of God might do righteousness and justice. This was God's purpose. In fact, this idea for the people of God is strengthened in the New Testament. Consider for a moment the purpose of Scripture found in Paul's second letter to Timothy. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every work. God's Word was given for the people of God that they may do these things, that we may be equipped. God has revealed Himself to His people for the express purpose that we may be taught reproved, corrected, trained in righteousness, and equipped to do good works. This truth is rooted in divine election. Because Scripture is for the benefit of the man of God. Of course, this is the Christian. And so we come now again to our study in Genesis. And this should be in our minds. We, we want this idea in our minds of God's choosing of Abraham and God's choosing of his people so that we may better understand why God is dealing with Abraham the way that he is. God is training Abraham in justice and righteousness. And he's doing so for the benefit of him, of him but also of all those who would come after him. Now, you might recall from our last time in our study, 
Um, The Lord appeared at Abraham's tent along with two angels. Two other men, as it were, came along with the Lord. Now the visit of the Lord had two purposes. We looked at the the first one last week. or Not last week, because I wasn't here, but three weeks ago, whatever. Well, last time I was in the pulpit. Uh, The first purpose was to announce the blessing of the birth of Isaac. Now, of course, this this announcement has been given over and over again. But this was was for the express purpose that Sarah would hear directly from the Lord. Sarah, it would be in her ears that she indeed was to bear a son even in her old age. And of course, this reality was shocking to her, as one could imagine. If, if uh, any elderly woman was told, well, you're going to have a child, that would be, well, you're kidding me, right? How could this be? She was advanced in years, and to add to it, she's not only old beyond childbearing years, but she's been barren her whole life. And her response to this revelation was that she was astonished, and she laughs, and of course she tries to deny that, Then as that scene concludes, the two angels look toward Sodom and they begin to prepare to set out to that place. And that comes now to the second purpose of the Lord's visit. First was so that Sarah would hear of the blessing of the birth of Isaac. The second was so that Abraham might be brought into the confidence of the Lord, for he was a prophet of the Lord. And God was going to reveal his plan of judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. As we know, Sodom was an exceedingly wicked place. And God was going to judge the city. But, before he does this, he was bringing Abraham in on his plans. And of course the reason is, Abraham is a prophet and he was to be the father of a great nation. And so if Abraham is to lead, he must first learn and be taught about true justice. And so this is where we pick up in our narrative. So as the two men, these two angels, uh, prepare to depart, uh, they look down toward Sodom. Now, of course, they're high up. Sodom is down in the valley. And so they're looking down towards Sodom. This was the place they were going to go and investigate the sin and then punish and destroy the place. As we saw last time, Abraham's accompaniment of his departing guests completes the narrative's portrait of him as the good and dutiful host. Remember, you know, he had uh, personally set the table and, and, and served uh, the, the Lord and the angel, angels. And so the Lord and Abraham are now just left together. They're on the lofty perch with a commanding view of the valley which included Sodom and Gomorrah and all of the well-watered cities of the valley. And it's here uh, that the Lord begins to reflect within himself concerning Abraham. Uh, verse 17 says this, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great nation, a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And so what we have recorded here for us, if this was indeed said out loud by the Lord, was for Abraham's benefit. So it may be the Lord is sort of speaking to himself, but he's speaking in a way that Abraham is there to hear it. 
It's for His benefit. It's not necessarily for the Lord's own personal benefit, but it's also for our benefit also. We're, we're, we're seeing a little bit about how, how the Lord is working. What was to follow was to challenge Abraham to act wisely and to seek justice. And so the narrator, Moses, was a prophet just as Abraham is a prophet. And since God esteems his prophets, he therefore reveals his plans to them. In this way, God brings his people, particularly his prophets, into his confidence. As it says in Amos chapter 3 and verse 7, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. God loves his prophets. He reveals himself to his prophets. So Abraham was called by God to be a great and mighty nation. He was chosen by God and will command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord. So the training in righteousness of God's people, again, is rooted in their divine election. Because they've been made God's people, God will then train them to act righteously, to do justice. God had chosen Abraham. We've seen this really over and over through our study in Genesis, how God had chosen Abraham, called Abraham out of Ur of the, of the Chaldeans to make him a people. He was then to do righteousness. Abraham was to practice justice. And this is true for the Christian as well. The Christian who has been chosen by God before the foundation of the world is to be trained in righteousness and justice. And the reason, the reason is so that we may experience the blessings of the Lord as He brings about His promises to His people. God is working through Abraham and through his household after him, and through all of his people to spread his goodness, his mercy, and his grace. Abraham's purpose was to bring blessings even to all of the nations. And so there's a sense that in Abraham's time, the nations may look upon Abraham and say, oh, oh, that we may be blessed like Abraham is. He's the picture of blessing. But now the members of the nations can enjoy the blessings of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. In Christ, His people proclaim His goodness and His mercy and His grace. And so as God is dealing with Abraham, uh, God is, in, in a sense, what He's doing is sort of pulling the curtain back, as it were. He's allowing Abraham to, to peer into his counsel and to participate in what is to take place, to work out justice and righteousness. And the result is the pleading of Abraham on behalf of the cities of the valley. More specifically, he's pleading for the righteous who may actually be among the citizens of that place. If there's any righteous there, Lord, you see how the Lord how Abraham is working out righteousness and justice. Now no doubt his own nephew Lot was foremost on his mind. A lot, you might remember, had settled in the well-watered valley of Sodom and then had eventually taken up residence in the city. And so the pleading for the righteous who may be swept up along with the wicked was also a plea on behalf of his only nephew 
who Peter calls righteous lot. And so as a, as a great leader, as a head of what will be a powerful nation, Abraham was to learn and then to practice justice. Abraham was to be the father of the nation of Israel. Even, I mean, he's been promised this time and time and time again. That promise has again been renewed. In this very visit in which he is now speaking with the Lord, he had been told again about the birth of his son, Isaac. He and Sarah would have a son, and through Isaac will come the covenant blessings. A great nation will be established. And so as the nation has its start here, right, in, in a sense, sort of seed form, the, the, the nation is beginning, so too was his training in righteousness and in true justice to begin. And again, the reason for this training is rooted in God's divine election. First, in his choosing Abraham, which was to result in a people who are characterized by righteousness and justice, which then leads to the fulfillment of the Lord's promise of worldwide blessing. This was true for Abraham, this was true for the nation of Israel, and it is still true for the church of Jesus Christ today. Christians who have been chosen by God, plucked out of the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of Christ, are to be characterized by righteousness and justice. When we live this out, the world cannot help but be blessed. For many will come, will be invited to taste and see that indeed the Lord is good. This is the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a transforming power which comes from you and I living out the simple and even quiet Christian life marked by repentance from sin, faith in Jesus Christ, loving justice, and walking in righteousness. The world can do nothing but look at that and say, Wow, you, you may have had this experience, haven't you, where the, somebody sees the way you live. Why are you different? That's the gospel at work, even as you haven't even said anything necessarily yet. We're to love justice. We're to walk in righteousness. In fact, isn't this the commandment of God? In Micah chapter 6, this is a well-known verse to you. Verse 8, He has told you, a man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Or to live and be marked out by righteousness. Well, the Lord answers his own question. Remember, he was speaking to himself in verse 17. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? He answers it by explaining to Abraham the disturbing case of the cities of the valley. Look at verse 20. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the Lord had determined to make an inquiry into the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. He will investigate so that he might know if the sin, the the sin which is great that is being said about them, this outcry against the city, if this is true. 
Now, of course, it's not that that God does not already know. That's not the point. Rather, God is demonstrating for the benefit of Abraham and for the reader what true justice looks like. There's a complaint. A complaint of very grave sin. But one does not simply condemn the accused out of hand. Just because there's an accusation doesn't mean say, ah, guilty. There first must be a proper investigation. The judge of a matter must have knowledge of the situation before he acts. If Abraham and all those who were to come after him were to judge righteously, then they must learn this lesson. The Lord is modeling justice for Abraham. He will first investigate the charges of wickedness against the city. Then he will respond to the pleas of the innocent that they might be spared. And finally, he will bring righteous justice to the place. This, beloved congregation, is how justice is practiced. And this is a far cry to how justice seems to be done in our own day, doesn't it? Christians ought to have a great love for true justice. And so what we observe in our culture ought to disturb us. There are a couple of errors which occur too often, both within and outside of the church of Jesus Christ. The first is the error of rushing to judgment. Someone is accused of doing some wrongdoing, whether actual or conceived. And without any evidence, that person is condemned in the court of popular opinion. This is something of a shoot first, ask questions later approach. This attitude is often exacerbated by our media environment, particularly our social media. A person's reputation can be destroyed simply based on the on the allegation of wrongdoing. Now, on the other side of the coin, there is also the error of refusing to look into a matter because there, you know, the, there's no way that this accusation could, could be true. Right? I'm not going to look into it because that, that can't possibly be true. The accused appears to be such a good person. They're, such a, they're so good. They're so wonderful. Everybody loves them. This can't, it can't be true. There's no way they could possibly be guilty of what's being stated. Perhaps the reason why there's no investigation is that this individual who's accused provides some sort of benefit to other people in which uncovering the truth will destroy. To ignore the evidence is to fail to practice justice. It is not protecting the innocent, it is protecting the guilty. When it comes to practicing justice, whether it be in the civil courts or in the church courts, an investigation must be conducted. The facts of the case need to be made clear. They need to be laid out on the table. They can be weighed out. Judgments are to be made on truth, not conjecture, not on mere opinions. You and I must seek the truth, and we must stand on the truth, because all truth is God's truth. And we know that God knows all things. And even in this case, he certainly knew already whether the outcry against Sodom was true. He knew it was true. 
His knowing or not it was this is beside the point. God is demonstrating true justice by first investigating the facts. We're going to go down there and we're going to find out if the outcry is true. And it's God's people. When there's accusations made against others, we too must do the same. We must first investigate. Now, maybe you personally may not be, but in order for justice to be done, whether it's the church or the civil courts, true justice requires an investigation of the facts. Now, the, the, of course, the, the accusations leveled against Sodom were very great, very, very grave. Grievous crimes have been committed which had reached heaven. Abraham will later understand this to mean that God was on a search and destroy mission, and in response, he seeks for mercy. But this, this, by the way, this is the very thing that God wanted him to do. This was part of his training. And perhaps the outcry against Sodom had already reached Abraham's ears. Abraham may well have known what was going on in Sodom. He may have understood it well. As the case may be, two of the visitors turn from there and they begin to go to Sodom to conduct the Lord's investigation. As Abraham stood before the Lord who remained. And so the gracious host, Abraham, was now to practice being the righteous judge. As he and the Lord looked down from their perch upon the cities of the valley, Abraham drew closer to the Lord and he posed this question, verse 23. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham, in fact, is very emphatic. Could God simply judge and destroy everyone, the wicked and the righteous alike, just wipe them out? It does not seem right to judge all because of the actions of a few. This kind of scenario plays out in families and in classrooms all the time. Children understand the injustice of this kind of procedure, right? Maybe you've had this experience in your school days. You know, a couple of kids are goofing off, and oh, that's a whole, you know, the whole class is now punished. That's not right. You know what? Those kids are correct. <laughs> that's injustice. Abraham's immediate concern here is for justice. The question is, what if there are righteous people in the city along with all these wicked? What happens then? Again, surely his nephew, Lot, was in his mind. Now it is here that we need to make a distinction between justice and chastisement. We need to make a distinction between justice and and chastisement. Not all suffering is the punishment from the Lord. As Calvin rightly points out, when God chastises a people, both the righteous and the wicked endure the same punishment, such as the righteous of Israel and Judah, who endured the destruction of Assyria and Babylon, and those who had to endure the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. This was part of the chastisement of the Lord. This wasn't the justice of the Lord. The purpose of chastisement is to build up the faith of God's children. You and I as believers in Jesus Christ experience the chastisement of the Lord. Or at least we ought to experience the chastisement of the Lord. When you experience that, it's showing, really it should encourage you in your faith. For the Lord chastises those who are His. 
So the purpose, of course, is to build you up in your faith. What Abraham is talking about, though, is not chastisement. He's talking about justice. His concern was that the righteous may be swept up and destroyed along with the wicked. This, he surmised, would be an injustice. And so he asks, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Now, 50 is approximately half the size of a small city. If there were as many people as could be found in a small city, it would be unjust to put them to death because of the sins of others. Abraham makes this very point in verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Notice the repetition Far be it from you, God, that you would do such a thing. Abraham is expressing horror at the thought that the righteous could be swept up by God, that God would act unjustly towards the righteous. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? In other words, justice is in part a restoring of the community's right order under God's rule by punishing the wicked and those who oppress the weak and delivering then the righteous. The the righteous should not be simply swept up and destroyed along with the wicked. That would be an injustice. Now in the interchange, Abraham is not challenging God. He's not telling God that, well, you're wrong to even consider such a thing. This is not what he's doing. He's not challenging. He's pleading with God. He's pleading that God would act according to his own righteousness and his holy character. He's pleading that God would act as God should. Knowing that God would. God rescues the weak. God rescues the humble. And he destroys the oppressor. It would be unheard of for the righteous, for the righteous God to destroy everyone arbitrarily. God is not arbitrary. God is not like the God of the pagans who act arbitrarily. God would not destroy the righteous along with the wicked. This would be against his very character. And so verse 26, the Lord graciously responds. If I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. If there's 50 found in the city, I'll I'll just say the whole city because of those 50 who are there. The Sodomites, like the people in Noah's day, they had the opportunity to repent and turn from their wicked ways. They could acknowledge their sin and their wickedness. They could turn from it and they could turn to God and be saved. But, like with all unbelief, the time of grace and divine forbearance had an expiration date. And in their case, it had come to an end. God will look into the matter thoroughly and then He will execute justice in such a way that Sodom will become the framework for all divine justice. In fact, throughout the scriptures, 
it will be used as, as the prime example of justice. Consider how often it is said, like in the days of Sodom. God used this event as the framework for how justice is done. God will spare the whole city if there are 50. But then Abraham presses the matter a little bit further. And in any show of humility and deference, he calls, calls himself dust and ashes. I'm just dust and ashes. And he lowers the number by five. He begins to press the Lord. He's very apologetic. But he's seeking to spare the city by God's grace. What if there's 45? What if there's 40? What if there are 30 righteous to be found? And he keeps doing this. He keeps lowering the number, pleading, pleading with the Lord with a smaller and smaller amount until it comes to 10. Verse 32, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and the Lord returned, and Abraham returned to his place. From Abraham's initial plea to the very to the very last, the Lord responded six times. Six responses from the Lord. And then the text ends abruptly. The Lord says, I will spare it, and then he goes his way. And what this does is, is it retains the tension. Right? It retains attention of the narrative. And it also shows us this. Ultimately, it is the Lord himself who is the sole judge of all the earth. Abraham got to participate a little bit. But ultimately, it's the Lord who's the judge of the earth. Abraham was to learn. He was to learn about justice. He did this through pleading with God. And in the end, God departs. His, and, he, and God is going to go do what God is going to do. And Abraham returns to his tent. Now the point is not that there must be ten righteous people in a place. That's not, that's not the point. Like, well, if there's at least ten righteous people, then, then maybe God will spare. That's not. That's maybe missing the point. Really, what's being illustrated is God's dealings with his people. As it is, we will see this next time as the scene shifts then to the two angels who had gone to the city to investigate, and also to Lot, who God will deliver from that place. Lot was among the righteous. And by the way, it turns out the number was much smaller than ten in that place. Well, the justice of God and all his dealings with men is, in, is important to understand within the context of God's divine election. You see, not everyone has the same opportunity to hear the gospel. It may, it may be that the people of Sodom didn't have the same opportunity, certainly not the same as Abraham had. Not everyone has the same opportunity to hear the gospel, nor is everyone equally able, able to respond to the gospel. In fact, no one could respond were it not for the divine intervention of God and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. God has chosen those whom he would bless. And this is illustrated in the life of Abraham, in the life of Paul, and in your own life as well. 1 Corinthians 1, 28-29 says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has chosen the low and despised of the world. It's us. He's chosen sinners such as us. None of us have any place to boast in ourselves. Abraham was being taught justice. And he was given an opportunity to practice justice because, because he'd been chosen by God. To be a blessing to the nations. And Christians are to practice justice. Not the flimsy excuse for justice which is practiced by the humanists and rationalists of our day. But true, biblical, and robust justice. To do justice is to press the truths of the gospel. We're all guilty sinners. We're to seek to restore our community's right order under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ by taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. By seeking truth regardless of personal cost. By honoring our Savior and our King Jesus with our wills, with our hearts, with our treasure, even our very lives. Our goal in justice is not merely to transform society to meet our own personal preferences, but it's to see lives transformed as they trust and rest in Jesus. Because it is the gospel which changes everything. It is the good news of Jesus Christ which changes everything. The crucified and resurrected Lord which makes the spiritually dead to be made alive. This is what changes everything. Justice in that case, has been served because Jesus paid the price for us. And so as the Lord investigated the matter of your life, as the Lord investigates you and your sin, He looks deeply into that matter and He looks and He sees His Son. And you are declared justified. And so as we live the Christian life, acting justly, seeking righteousness, we do so because we love God. And we love God because, 1 John tells us, He first loved us. Which then is to say that true justice, as we've said from the beginning today, is ultimately rooted in God's sovereign electing and His eternal eternal decrees. We don't do what is right to earn God's favor but out of obedience and gratitude for the Savior who is ours. And so I ask you, dear congregation of Jesus Christ, what what does this town need? What does our country need, our state, our nation, our world? It needs Christ. It is only obedience to Christ which will heal our nation in our world. This beloved congregation is why churches are planted. It's why this church was planted. And why we need to continue to seek the kingdom and the advancement of gospel proclaiming churches throughout our region, throughout this world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this study in your word and particularly for the lesson of practicing true justice. We thank you that you demonstrate what that looks like through investigating, seeking those who are righteous, and then executing justice, even as you pour out your wrath. We thank you, God, that your wrath has been poured out on Jesus on our behalf, that we've been justified by faith in him. Father, we pray that as we 
go about our Christian life. We may be those who walk in justice, even, even as it may cause suffering for ourselves, that we stand on truth and what is right, knowing that blessing comes. We pray that we be bold in this matter. We thank you, God, for what you're doing in our lives. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.